We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back, Notre Dame fans, to another edition of the Irish Breakdown Podcast. But it is a special edition of the podcast because it is Friday. And that means it is the Friday free-for-all mailbag time. We are going to answer all of your questions about Notre Dame football, Notre Dame recruiting, or college football in general. And Ryan and I were just kind of going through all the questions. And, man, we've already got some great ones on the docket, Ryan. Vince will not be with us today. It's just me and Ryan. Vince is coming back from vacation today, so his family and them are on their way back and he'll be uh, relaxing a little bit today once they get home and unpacking and doing all that kind of fun stuff. But we'll be back. A little programming note, Sean Styers is going on vacation next week. So Vince won't be on in the afternoon show next week either. Vince is going to host IB Nation Sports Talk next week. He's already got a big guest lined up that I'm excited to listen to. And uh, we're going to go over kind of the whole week schedule here this weekend. But Ryan, mm-hmm. we're going we're gonna to get right to it. We got some great questions already. Going to start things off here with a Notre Dame question, and then I'm going to go to another question that uh, is kind of real. There's a really interesting question today. I want to start off with this one from Sammy J. Besides football and men's basketball, what sport would you most like to see Notre Dame win a national championship? I got to go with lacrosse since the coach has been there forever. Do you have an opinion on that one, Ryan? I mean, I guess I would go baseball, right? Like, I mean – I, I think for me growing up, I was always a football basketball guy, actually. Those were kind of my two main sports, but I, I would say a third after that was baseball. I know Notre Dame is a really competitive team in hockey as well, but for me, like I just I liked hockey a little bit growing up, but I never really gravitated towards it a ton. So I would probably go with baseball just because I think that was kind of my third growing up. I'm there too. I think for me it's it's There'd be two ways to look at this, right, Sammy? One would be, would there be a championship that would benefit Notre Dame in some way more than another? You know, so if you were to say other than football, which one would I want it to be? I'd say basketball because that would bring sort of the most prestige and attention and those type of things. And I don't really think there's – I don't think any of the other sports is that way. I mean, women's basketball has won a championship recently, and that's great for the women's program, but I don't think it necessarily, like – 
you know, moves the needle for the sports that that I enjoy the most. I would, en- I'd probably enjoy the women's bat. I mean, I enjoyed their championship run a few years ago, and and the fi- the two final four games of the buzzer beaters were tremendous. But I just like baseball more. I mean, I've I've always been a baseball fan. I I've stopped watching Major League Baseball. Ryan, you and I have talked about this. I, I really enjoy watching the College World Series because it's they play more of a brand. Most teams play a brand of baseball that I grew up watching. You know, and mm-hmm. and not like Major League Baseball. That's why I thoroughly enjoyed watching Notre Dame beat Tennessee. So I, I think that'd be fun. And I, and I think that would help Notre Dame. I mean, that's <clears throat> the thing too is Notre Dame's baseball team will impact Notre Dame's football recruiting more than any other sport will because there is more crossover in the two sports. So like last year you saw like Sam Horn, who was a big time baseball player and, 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 uh, and quarterback. You see Drake Bowen in this year's class. So you're going to have a lot of guys like that that are – two sport guys and if the baseball team is legitimate you know top program i think that helps norm's baseball team and more exposure but also helps them with recruiting so that would be another reason for my answer beyond just i like baseball more than all the other sports like lacrosse i'm sure it'd be cool i don't know who their coach is i mean i just i don't follow lacrosse i know they're very good Mm -hmm. i don't really follow hockey honestly so it you know for interest wise it's not really something that i would do now i would my wife and I were getting ready to start. We were going to kind of go to some hockey games and I was going to try to learn. And then, you know, stuff hit and then, you know, couldn't, couldn't be on campus because of all the craziness and all the restrictions and stuff. But maybe that'll change in a couple of years. If I actually make it out to a few hockey games and be like, wow, this is actually a fun sport to follow. But right now I just, here's what I know of hockey. That little black thing they call the puck goes into the (laughs) net and that's a good thing. And that's, that's about it. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Here's a question from Sean Green about... Notre Dame's upcoming season and their opponents. And Sean Green asks, since schedules never end up as strong or as weak as predicted in the preseason, how many opponents do you feel will overachieve, underachieve, or play close to expectations? So, Ryan, you want to just kind of let's maybe go through this start to finish and just kind of 
give a you know kind of give a quick overview this is a great question sean give a quick overview of sort of where teams are mm-hmm. going into the season and whether or not we think those expectations are warranted and, and let's start with ohio state and ohio state is a cons- consistent top three team Mo- more often than not in the polls i've seen they're top two mm-hmm. i would expect them to, to be in the top three to four and the the ap and coaches poll i would imagine closer to two to three than than three or than four but who, who knows how that's going to go. But I think for them, Ryan, I mean, what are your thoughts on will they overachieve, underachieve, play close to expectations? What's your thoughts on Ohio State? Yeah, I was going to say it's a push for me personally. I, I think that they are a very talented football team, so I am fully okay with where they are ranked in the preseason. There are definitely some question marks you know how much the offensive line is going to improve what does Jim Knowles look like defensive wise in his year one at Ohio State so there are questions that you can kind of pick apart but I think when you have guys like CJ Stroud and Jackson Smith and Jigba and some of the other talented players you know Travion Henderson I think that I think that I'm comfortable with where Ohio State is so I would say that I think they're I think they're going to be on par with relatively they're going to be a top three to four team I think and because I I just I find it hard to believe that they'll have much of a downslide. I think they're just going to, I think they're going to be about what's expected of them right now. I, I don't know if Ohio, I mean, no matter what happens against Notre Dame, they beat Notre Dame, they lose to Notre Dame. It doesn't change my opinion. And what I said the other day was, I think by the end of the year, I expect Ohio state to be one of, if not the best team in college football, just because I look at it. I think that Ryan day did make some good hires to improve his staff. I think Justin Fry, is it was a was an improvement over coach stud on the offensive line i don't know how well his system is going to fit ohio state's system that's just an unknown that you kind of have kind of like you know i don't know how al golden's gonna adjust to you know whatever you know the relationship with those marcus freeman until you see it you don't really know and and he's run some different type of offense i think that being at ucla help is going to help him better adjust to what they're doing at ohio state as opposed to going right from what they're doing at boston college but, you know, that's that's a question I have. But I think he's a good football coach. And, and you know, I, I think the big question for me is going to be how quickly can Jim Knowles adjust or will he adjust? And that's yeah. my big question mark of Ohio State. Because two things that Ohio State fans have to embrace, and they won't, most won't anyway. Number one is the talent level at Ohio State is not what I think Ohio State fans think it is. Is it bad? No. But this is not the 2015 or 2019 lineups top to bottom when it comes to talent. Zach Harrison has a lot of talent. He's not Chase Young. He's not Joey Bosa. He's not all of a sudden going to turn the light on and be Will Anderson, right? Could he be a lot better than he's been? Yeah. Could Jack Sawyer be very good? Yeah. You know, could is JT a really talented player? Yeah. But when you look at the linebacker depth, you look inside of the defensive line, there's some good players there. I don't see elite players there. Linebacker. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about Steel Chambers maybe being their best guy this year. Um, um, that's a little bit of a drop-off from some of the talent they've had running around at linebacker in past years. You know, when, when you think about when Notre Dame last played them in 2015, you got Darren Lee outside. You know, you've got uh, – uh, I'm trying to remember his name. The Ray guy Fon was – Mellon? No, Ray he Fon was Mellon. a Mike. Him and Curtis Grant rotated a Mike. Josh Perry is who I'm thinking of. At uh, Will, who's a third-round pick. The yeah. talent there now isn't in we're in the same universe as what that group was talent wise. I mean, you got Curtis Grant and Raekwon McMillan rotating at Mike. You know, same thing in the secondary. You had Eli Apple, Jerry Conley, Von Bell, Tyreek Powell. You know, they had Marshawn Latimer coming off the bench on that team in 2015, right? Like the talent you have now is not that. 
Now it's also better than what it was last year. So my mm-hmm. question is: Is where where do they where does it land? Are they going to be kind of close to last year, but a little bit better? Do they start to play to their talent level, which would make them to me a top twenty caliber you know caliber ish defense? That's a question mark, and that's going to be up to Jim Knowles. And and here's the thing: we've talked about this before, Ryan. Jim Knowles is a very good defensive coordinator, but he in his last two stops has been a guy who believed in we're going to install the defense, we're going to do what we do, and knowing that there's going to be some bumps along the way. And if you look at him when he took over Duke and when he took over Oklahoma State, in both times he took over for coaches that were let go, they gave up more points, more yards, and more yards per play in year one under Knowles than they did the year before of the coach that got fired. Now, by year two and year three, their defenses were really good. Does Knowles have that same approach at Ohio State, or is he going to kind of adapt and say, hey, we'll we'll have to install this thing over time because we've got a championship we got to try to go win? That's what I don't know because it's a different circumstance that he's stepping into where those teams were kind of trying to rebuild. Here mm-hmm. they're trying to say, hey, look, this is a pretty good situation. you got to make it better so we can go out and compete for a championship. So yeah. I'm curious to see which approach he takes, and I think the approach that he takes is going to determine if Ohio State can be that kind of defense. Because it's a complex system, Ryan, and if he's trying to throw all of it at him at once, they're going to have the same problems past defenses have had, which is you're going to give up plays and give up, you know, you're just not going to be quite as good as you potentially could be. If he's willing to adapt and kind of find a middle ground, I think by the middle of the year, the Ohio State defense is going to be pretty good, and they're going to look a lot like the 2014 team, which in September wasn't a very good team, but by November was as good as anybody in the country and obviously went on to win a national championship. Yeah, no, I I think we're on the same wavelength there. I was going to say I look forward to seeing if Coach Knowles does take a more simplistic approach because to your point, you know, going into Duke and even going into Oklahoma State, you don't have as much dudes in the cupboard, right? Like I th- I don't think there's a talent issue on the Ohio State defense. There's just it hasn't been developed properly, right? So I think taking a simplistic approach and putting good athletes in good positions is a sound way of thinking for Jim Knowles as that is successful then maybe next year the year after you start to you know slowly integrate your system into this into what mm-hmm. is already attached as far as your philosophy is is concerned so i agree i think that that's going to be the big depender though because i i if jim Knowles comes in is like nope i don't care we're running our defense we're right. running the defense i've always run then you're going to overload guys a little bit, and it's going to overwhelm early on in the season. And I think it will get better as the year goes on. Mm-hmm. But I do think that you, I think that as a good coach, you have to have kind of some understanding that, like, hey, I got more talent here than I had the first couple years at, e- well, at, at any year that you were at Duke, mm-hmm. and any year pretty much that you're at Oklahoma State as well. So, be having that that understanding, I think, will go a long way to you know taking a different approach, mm-hmm. which I think will be a sound way of thinking for Coach Knowles. Let me follow up with a question for you. Are you saying that Ohio State has elite talent, or are you saying the talent's good enough to where when you look at the teams they're going to play, they should be a good defense? Because you're saying talent's not a problem. I I think it depends on what that means. Does that mean they're going to have an elite defense by the end of the year, or you're saying they're going to be – because, again, they don't have to necessarily be elite. They just have to be not bad. And last year they were bad, especially against the good teams they played. Well, I'll say this. I don't think that from a – large depth perspective like from a Mm -hmm. full scope i don't think it's elite talent from a top to bottom but i do think that there's more than enough elite talents like you'd mentioned jt zach harrison has not been that guy but like he does have elite talent he just hasn't been an elite football player 
Denzel Burke, I think, has some elite talent to him. I think Cameron Brown is a good football player at corner. I think Ronnie Hickman right. has some elite level athleticism. Right. So I think that he can look at that and say, I have my guys. And as I continue to adopt and to evolve, then that's where like, hey, we need to recruit this position better. We need to recruit that position better. But I think for this year, you can be a near elite defense. Yeah. I think the talent yeah. is there. I don't think they can be elite. I don't. I don't see that talent. I think they can be really good. I think they can be very similar to what Notre Dame has been in the past, which is a really good defense, but enough holes to where you're not going to be elite, meaning you're not going to look like Clemson 2018. You're not going to look like you know, some of the defenses Bama's had. You're not going to look like Georgia last year. Like That's elite, and I don't sure. see them being in that in that universe, in my opinion. But it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But here's the point. Will they have better talent on defense than just about every offense they're going to face in the Big Ten? Yes, that that I would say. So if it's relative to the competition they play after Notre Dame, then I would say, yeah, they should be much better. It's just going to depend on what Knowles does. So very, very good question. Jared Ginn said, hey, guys, just found this channel about two weeks ago and being a Notre Dame fan for 30 plus years, I believe I have watched about 100 hours of this show over the last couple of weeks. Well, Jared, welcome aboard. I, you know, if a hundred hours, so that gives him about a, what a week and a half worth of videos that he's been able to catch up on. We appreciate you uh, finding us, and and hopefully you stay around and enjoy the the shows that we're putting together. So, Ryan got a super chat from Sean Higgins. Sean said, mm -hmm. "I want to ask you this, Ryan. Pro, uh, project roles for Jalen Sneed, Justin Walters, Eli Raritan, and Prince Colley. Also, how do Osbury and Sneed compare as prospects? Thanks, fellas. So, let's start with." the first part, and we're going to say project roles for 2022. Okay, so for this season. Yeah. And then we'll get to the second part. So project roles for Jalen Sneed, Justin Walters, Eli Raritan, and Prince Kali. I, I expect an expansive role from Jalen Sneed during the season. I think early on we're going to see Jack Kaiser have, you know, the majority of the reps at Rover. But I do think as Jalen Sneed starts to kind of – develop a deeper understanding of the position and be comfortable at, at Rover. I do expect him to start to get more playing time during the season. I, I'm not going to say that I will ever expect him to be the, to, you know, unseat someone as the starting Rover, but I think by the year's end, he's going to get a, a solid amount of reps at Rover. So I think he's going to be a key backup and I think he's going to have an evolving role for the defense. Justin Walters, I, I just think there's too much depth at safety right now. I know, I know where we're talking about like 2023, there's going to be obviously some guys that are going to be out of the door, but right now you have Brandon Joseph, Ramon Henderson, Xavier Watts, and Houston Griffith and DJ Brown both returning. So I just think Justin Walters is, I mean, he's going to have to fight to get into the two deep. I don't think that, I think he's just going to kind of be, I don't want to call him the odd man out, but it's just a lot, there's a lot of talent there, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that he's just going to have a little bit of a difficult time breaking into the two deep. Eli Raritan's an interesting one for me, Brian. I'm not really 100% sure what to expect from him. I think that there could be a situation where you ease him along. Maybe he's got a simplistic package in the offense. Maybe he's you know used more towards the red zone and that type of role. Or he could be the number two tight ends by season's end. Like I could see either world happening for an Eli Raritan. And, and maybe by the end of the season, Michael Mayer's kind of grooming him to be the next mm -hmm. guy. Like, I think that he has that type of upside, but I think there is a little volatility towards just how much he's used this year. And Prince, I think Prince, for me, is going to be a backup at weak side linebacker. I think that the question is, is if Maris Loifau is what we think he could be, then that means that Prince is going to be rotating in, but he's not going to have a ton of time, right? But if, if Maris isn't the guy, the guy, 
then maybe that's where Prince gets a little more of an expansive role. So I guess kind of working my way here, I think Jalen Sneed, again, is going to have a more of an expansive role at the end of the season, going to be eased along early. Justin Walters, I think, kind of is just going to be fighting for any type of reps because there's just a little bit of depth there. Eli Raritan, I think, could be the number two tight end by season's end and be developed to be the next guy. And I think Prince Kali is going to be fighting for reps behind Maris Loyfell at Will. Okay, so first of all, I think Justin Walters is going to have a big role in Notre Dame this year because it's not always just about defense. And that's the thing is, I mean, special teams is a very important part of the game. So although I, I think it'll be tough for him to find playing time on defense, I think all I think all three of the defensive players mentioned in this breakdown are going to be very key special teams players this year. I think Prince Colley is going to be a very important special teams player this year. I, I'll be shocked if Jalen Sneed and Nolan Ziegler as freshmen aren't on special teams. I think Eli Raritan, you kind of said either or. I made it like an either or. I actually think it's going to be both. I think they're going to bring him along slowly because he's coming back from a knee injury. But I think by the end of the year, he's going to be playing a, a decent amount of football. Mm-hmm. And we'll go into the 2023 season battling with like Kane Barong and, and if Mitchell Evans comes back healthy and, and Holden Stace for that number one tight end role. And I think he's the the guy with the highest ceiling. So I, I think they'll have to bring him along slowly early on because he's coming back from the knee injury. But I think once he's fully good to go, I think they're going to force him onto the field. I, I do. I, I, and I think they need to. He's too talented not to play. And I, I think that he brings a very unique aspect to uh, – to the Notre Dame, the Notre Dame offense with his height and speed and playmaking ability. I think Prince Colley, I, I think Prince will play at least, I think he'll play at least a couple hundred snaps on defense this year. And, and I think that Notre Dame would really like to, from talking to Coach Freeman and just different things he said in the past, I think Notre Dame would like to be in a situation where it's playing five linebackers. Now, who are those five? Is it going to be a situation and I'm talking about like in a normal rotation. So I'm not like nickel, you know, so you could, is it a situation where, you know, Prince can battle f- with Bo Bauer for the starting nickel job on top of the rotation role, or does Marist have that role? And then that allows them to feel more comfortable, maybe rotating Marist out a little bit more on first and second down. Because I think look at like last year, for example, they had four different linebackers play at least 354 snaps. Well, part of that is because Bo Bauer had a basically a starting role in the nickel. Does that happen this year? Do we see more of a true rotation? So I think Prince will play. Plus, again, he's going to get 20-plus snaps, four or five different games where he's just going to play and mop up, you know, when they're just blowing people out. So I'm very curious. And, of course, Ryan, as it always is, when those young guys get on the field, the better they play, the more comfortable you are using them to give guys rest. Especially, like, ideally, when you're playing Ohio State, you're playing your guys. And, and you play them as much as you need to to win the game. But then when right. you play Marshall and Cal, then maybe say, look, we're going to give you every third series just to try to, you know, number one, get them some time. But then number two, those are the games you try to steal some snaps for your veterans to make sure they're fresh when you go out to Las Vegas and you play BYU. Right. And I think that's when that's when we can start to see Notre Dame hopefully do a better job of, of using some of those rotation players, maybe a 5, 10, 15 extra snaps in those games. Uh, which can then take some of that burden off. So uh, very, very good question. And then also, how do you compare Jaden Osbury and Jalen Sneed as prospects? So uh, there's two ways to look at this, Ryan. Yep. I think we would agree stylistically they're very different. So, mm-hmm. uh, but as far as role, so w- I want you to answer that question, but more so look at role and sure. fit as opposed to trying to compare them. This is what this guy does. This is what that guy does. Try right. looking at it from a role standpoint and a fit standpoint. 
Well, I think I think the one thing that they do have in common is that they are going to start at Rover potentially, right? If if Jay Nosbury does pick Notre Dame, then he would fit right into Rover early on, just like Jalen Snead is is tr- you know making that transition to Rover here at at Notre Dame this past spring. So you're going to see them stylistically in the same similar role. I think you could see eventually, for me, a world where Jalen Snead progresses into a will. Like if he outgrows the position, if he gets a little bit bigger, like he could be a guy that fits inside. I think, though, it's more likely that Jay Nosbury absolutely makes that transition because I think that from an instinctual perspective, Jay Nosbury can do really well inside. So I think it's more likely that Jay Nosbury long-term definitely fits inside. I think Jalen Snead could, but he could also, you know, just be a crazy athlete and stay outside and do all the things as a Rover that you would want him to play a position. So I think more than likely Osbury ends up inside a little more than Jalen Snead and Jalen Snead, I think has the the traits that he could move push inside, but I'm going to say Jalen Snead long-term is probably a true Rover. While I think Osbury is a Rover that could eventually grow or pretty quickly into a will and maybe even a Mike down the line. Like I would not say that that's crazy that he might be a Mike, just a little bit of a smaller version. Here's a very fun question, Ryan, that we've mm-hmm. got from Sean Kane. It says, Brian, and I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this, Ryan, or have an opinion on this because uh, you're, you're a bit of a young buck. I understand. <laughs> says, Brian, who wins 1989 Notre Dame versus 1995 Nebraska? That is a really interesting question, Ryan, because <clears throat> that Nebraska 1995 was... Nebraska team was nuts. Yes, they it were. Was, a it crazy was team. really, really good. But I, I also think that I, 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 I kind of look at it like this: like if you just look at that Nebraska team in '95 and just some of the talent that they had, right? Like obviously their offensive line was nuts that year. You had Tommy Frazier at quarterback when he was healthy. Uh, you had Lawrence Phillips and Amon Green at running back, defensive line: Christian Peter, Jason Peter, Grant Winstrom. Uh, Terrell Farley, Jamel Williams, Mike Minter at, at you know in the secondary. I mean that was a that was a really good defense. Notre Dame also had a, a really talented team that year, <clears throat> especially skilled players. I mean you're talking about Tony Rice being a dynamic player quarterback. You've got Rocket Ismail, you know you've got uh, Ricky Waters playing running back for that team. You got Rodney Culver in the rotation of running back, Anthony Johnson at running back, and those are t- those are two guys that spent a lot of time in the National Football League. You got Derek Brown at tight end, so. I think both of those teams were incredibly talented. And when you look at Nebraska that season, I mean, it's not that they just went undefeated, Ryan. I mean, they destroyed people. I'm looking at it now. The closest game they played all year was a 14-point game, uh, a home win over over Washington State. I mean, they absolutely annihilated. And that was I me mean, as a 3-8 and eight Washington State team. But, I mean, you're talking about they beat a, a number 10 Kansas 41-3. They beat number 7 Colorado 44-21. They beat Kansas State. It was really good that year. 49-24. I think that was a wasn't wasn't that a Michael Bishop team? I could be wrong on that, but I thought that I was a Michael you, Bishop led. You, you uh, might be right. Yeah, That's, yeah. But uh, actually, I think he might have been a little bit like ninety seven, ninety eight. But that was a pretty good Kansas State team. And then, of course, they annihilated uh, they annihilated Florida in the national championship game, sixty two twenty four. Although that was that was an interesting game because I felt like Florida came into that game with just a really horrible game plan. Then you look at Notre Dame, they played more competitive games that year, you know, beat Michigan on the road by five uh, in a game. Rocket Ismail took two back to the house, you know, had a four-point win over a pretty good USC team. 
you know, beat Penn State convincingly on the road, lost to, you know, the best team, you know, the best team in the country in 89 was Miami, lost to them on the road. So if you're talking about what it would have looked like in the title game, I, I kind of look at what the bowl game looked like that year. I mean, you played the best team in the Big 12 that year. Uh, that co- that Colorado team that Notre Dame played that year was also really good. They beat number 10 Illinois 38-7, blasted number 21 Washington 45-28. They had conference wins of 49-3, to 52-17, 49-17, 20-3 at Oklahoma, beat number three Nebraska that year, beat Oklahoma State 41-17, beat Kansas State 59-11. to They were undefeated. They were blowing people out, and then they went and played Notre Dame and just got completely outclassed. I think Miami was a horrible match. I mean, Florida was a horrible – Nebraska was a horrible matchup for Florida. I mean, Florida was about speed and, you know, getting the ball out to, you know, uh, their their receivers. And, and, and I mean, they kept going empty, and they couldn't protect. It was just such a horrible game plan. And, and Nebraska was fast and physical. Notre Dame in 89 was fast and physical. So I think it would have been a great game, to be honest with you. And, and uh, you know, two of the better option quarterbacks I've ever seen and Tony Rice and Tommy Frazier. Uh, Tommy was a a better passer. I think Tony Rice was an even more explosive runner. But, man, th- th- those would have been some really, really talented offensive teams. I, I would I would probably give the, the edge to that 89 Notre Dame team. I think it was a, a tremendous team. And, uh, you know, I, I, it would have been a great game. It would have been a great game. But I think – I think when you look at what Notre Dame was able to do against Big 12 teams during that stretch, I mean, every year almost – at the end of almost every year, for about five years, Notre Dame played the best team in the Big 12 in the, in the, in the postseason, and they won every game. They beat – well, they, they, they won all but one game. They beat Colorado in 89. They lost to Colorado in 90 on the phantom, you know, clip penalty on Rocket. Uh, they played Tech, They played Florida in, in 91. Then after that, they played Texas A&M again, beat Texas A&M 28-3. Texas A&M was obviously a a Big 12 team back then. And then in 1993, they played Texas A&M and beat Texas A&M again. Actually, I'm wrong on that. They didn't play a Big 12 team. That was before the Southwest Conference split up, now that I'm thinking about it. I don't think the Big 12 became a thing until a couple years after that so uh but they still had like i said they played that those type of teams from that division and had a lot of success and beat them so i think it would have been a good game would they have beat nebraska i don't know do i think they could have beat nebraska yeah i think that that notre dame would have been a much tougher matchup for that 95 nebraska team than florida was that's for darn sure but man that was a great great nebraska team the 94 team definitely notre dame could have beat that team and that was a good team but the 95 team was just nuts i mean that 95 team was just insanely insanely good oh i mean just nfl players everywhere on that team i mean it was that that was that was when they were actually the black shirts oh yeah that in a long time oh yeah yeah that was a really really good team sean has another kind of what if question from back in the past and it's if everything else stayed the same, meaning admissions, et cetera, but Barry Alvarez took over for Holtz in 1997, what level of success would he have had? It's, it's an interesting one. I mean, I would say Barry Alvarez is a great coach, so I would I would think that it would have started to, you know, kind of, I don't think we would have went into the, to the little bit of a tailspin that obviously happened in the early 2000s, right, in late 90s. Like, I think mm-hmm. that we would have – I think Notre Dame could have been able to recover if that mm-hmm. was the situation because Barry Alvarez is a fantastic coach. I mean, look what he's built, you know, just kind of by himself and 
Yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think the drop off between Lou Holtz and Alvarez is much at all. Like, I think mm-hmm. that Alvarez is a phenomenal coach in his own right. So, I think that you kind of probably could have recovered from some lost momentum there in the late nineties. Yeah, because again, you're not comparing him to the nineteen ninety. 91, 92, 93, 88, 89 version of Lou Holtz. By 1997, Lou had left. He was as engaged on a daily basis. We've heard all the stories about that, right? He was, he had the health, his own health issues. His wife, Beth, had her health issues. And he had been fighting battles with the administration for years that I think just kind of warmed down. So I think that with Barry Alvarez, you would have got a younger coach, a more energetic coach, a guy that believed in very similar things that Lou Holtz believed in, you know, fundamentals, physical, play hard in those football, buy into the things you're trying to do on and off the field. So I think we what we would have seen, Ryan, is a lot like what Lou's last couple teams looked like. You know, the, the 94 team took a step back, but in, in 1995, they went nine and three and, and uh, it took Florida State down to the wire in the Orange Bowl. That was a, a per, you know, lost Ohio State by 19, but that was a game Notre Dame had a lead in the second half, you know, went nine, eight and three and finishing the top 20 the next year. Uh, if Lou, if coach wasn't leaving, they would have gone to a bowl game, probably would have won, would have gone nine and three. I think we would have seen a lot of that. I think, you know, Barry Alvarez would have gotten a lot more out of Jerry's Jackson than what Bob Davey did. I think uh, Barry Alvarez would have had an offensive philosophy he believed in. He would have stuck to it instead of constantly going back and forth like Bob Davey did during his tenure. So I, I think they would have recruited better. Uh, I think they would have, played better i think they would have been you know been better in big games uh recruited better i mean i just think all of it i just think bob davy was in over his head uh, i don't think bob day bob davy was a good defensive coordinator he was not a great defensive coordinator he was not a head coach he definitely wasn't a head coach for a place like notre dame so i i agree i think the i think the floor would have been a lot like the 95 96 97 teams of eight and three nine and three type teams and then every couple of years, you'd have had that team that made a run. That's what I think would have happened. Because he would have been fighting against the administration. I mean, that's right. the reality. And then now, would he have been in place when a new administration came on and supported football? If he was still there, then they could have taken off and, and kind of been what Wisconsin was when they were at their best. You know, And that's what I think they, they would have been under Barry Alvarez. Because as you said, Ryan, guy was a great coach. And won for a long time at a place that not a lot of people have you know, win, you know, and, yeah. and, and Brett Bielema kind of rode those coattails for a few years and then, you know, starting to fade off a little bit when he took off for Arkansas. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I mean, he was a great developer, obviously, and, and he built something at Wisconsin that I thought was built so strongly from a foundational perspective. Cause like you said, I've had a couple coaches that have come in Wisconsin now and they've done Pretty good. I mean, it's been a lot more sporadic than obviously it was, but I just think the foundation was so well built by Coach Alvarez that like it was they were able to maintain it for a little bit even after he left. So let's go to the next one. Quinn Kibler. Even though CJ Carr is a little bit older for his grade, he seems to be filling out a little bit later than most his actual age, not grade. Do you think it will be a different story even by 2023? I, I want to push back on this notion a little bit, Ryan. Yeah. He say he's older for his grade. He's not that much older for his grade. It's partly a little bit older right? because of when his birthday is, but it's also sure. Dante Moore's young for his age. Cause that's the whole yep. thing. Well, he's same age as Dante Moore. He's 17 years old. He's going to be 18 as a senior in high school. He doesn't turn 19 until after he graduates high school. He's not that old. Also your age doesn't necessarily determine your growth 
patterns. So every 15-year-old doesn't grow. I mean, look at the kid that Notre Dame just offered yesterday. He looks more grown than most <laughs> class of 22 kids in the, you sure know, in the face and his body. So when I had a chance to see CJ up close, I don't know what his age is, but I said, that's a young kid. You could just see his face. You could see in his build. You could see a kid that's got a lot of time to develop. But even if he was the same in the same developmental stage as a, a, a an advanced 17-year-old, he's still a 17-year-old. Right. Who's going to continue probably maybe grow a half an inch. He's going to fill out his frame. He's going to get stronger. Uh, most people aren't done growing even close when they're 17 years old. So I, uh, I, I think he's going to continue to grow and mature, but he's not that much older for his age that as people think, like I said, he'll be 17 his whole junior year. He'll, he'll turn 18 after his junior year is completed, like right after it's like June. Right. And then he'll be 18 for his whole senior year. And, and so he won't turn 19 until he's on camp. Actually, he'll be done with his first semester of college at Notre Dame before yeah. he turns 19 because he'll be an early enrollee. So I, I don't think, I think that's overstated, I think very much overstated when people talk about how he's old for his age. And he, he's a month older than I was when I graduated high school, right? Cause you, I had one of those weird kind of late spring, early summer mm-hmm. birthdays. And you know, just do you, do you start early? Do you start late? You're either going to be older for your grade or going to be young for your grade. And right. you know, that's, that's the reality of it. So. I feel I feel like I'm in an NFL draft sphere for a second. I'm talking about like a 25 year old rookie, right? It's like, oh, how much stronger is he going to get? You know, what's the core strength going to be on that one? And like you said, he's 17 years old. I mean, I remember Tim Duncan grew like two inches while he was at Wake Forest. I mean, players, uh, people develop at much different kind of rates, right? So to your point, it's it is overstated. I agree, especially when you're just talking about like potentially Mm -hmm. gaining strength and weight. I mean, because if CJ Carr is done growing from a height perspective, what is he, Brian? Six two and a half? Like it's yeah, it's at fine. Least, yeah. Like it's it's not like he's he doesn't short, grow but... another inch. He's fine. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Like Correct. he needs to fill out. Of course. Like every other seventeen year old needs to fill out. All right. Let's go to another question from Sean Kane. If you could take two current players from another team, one offense on and one defense, and put them on Notre Dame's two thousand twenty two team, who would they be? I'm never a fan of answering these questions because I feel like it's disrespectful to the kids that chose Notre Dame, but I'll I'll play along. It's so much fun, though. So it much it fun. is, but it's just kind of like, oh, you're, you know, I mean, hey, look, those guys didn't pick Notre Dame, but I'll I'll it's play along. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, do you kind of have a, 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 we'll go offense first. We'll both give our offensive picks and then both give our defensive picks. Do you have anyone on offense that you kind of look at and say, hey, that's a, yeah, I mean, there's obvious ones, right? Like, you know, C.J. Stroud, Bryce Young, those kind of guys. I, I would actually I go in a different direction. Receiver. Yeah, that's I what I was thinking. I was thinking a wide receiver. I, I, my question is, though, and just for my early work, I don't know which wide receiver I would prefer. I guess the conversation for me would be between Jackson Smith and Jigba and, and uh, Keyshawn Boutte out of LSU. Mm-hmm. I like Boutte. If he's healthy, I think he's a stud. So I guess I'll go Keyshawn Boutte out of LSU. Because he's a guy that in the right system could play boundary. Correct in a more pro style offense, right? Yeah, I mean, he could play yeah. anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I don't, I don't know if Jackson Smith and Jig was a guy that I would want to put into the boundary. He's kind of a skinnier guy, you know, not real strong, like smooth, he's, athletic, he's, very talented. He's played he's like ninety percent, ninety percent of his snaps in the slot in his career. So yeah, yeah he's not a guy yeah. that's going to do that. Butte would would be the kind of the first thought that I had. Plus, plus thing I like about him, he can make plays down the field. Mm-hmm. And he can make plays after the catch, and he's strong. He's built kind of like explosive. a big running back. Yeah, yep. he's got a really yep. nice frame. 
Mm-hmm. I would probably look somewhere there. Defensively, that's give me any elite one. corner. I mean, that's that's really where I stand. I don't think Notre Dame has necessarily huge needs anywhere else. Uh, you could say, oh, maybe a, a big nose tackle. You know, give me Jalen Carter, somebody like that. That's, that's where but, I was going to go. Is it, yeah. it, For me, it was Will Anderson, but then you have to figure out Will Anderson, right. Isaiah Foskey, like cool – I, I probably would have go John. J, J. Although Carter. you could, you could put Isaiah Foskey to big end. You and, can. And he'd be fine. You know, for me, it's kind of like, do you want to go the route of strengthening something that's already your strength, or do you want to go in a way where, you're, like, does Jalen Carter or Will Anderson boost your D line more than taking a a great corner would would boost your 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 secondary? I guess is kind of the way that I look at it. You know what I mean, Ryan? It's, yeah, no, it's oh. fair. I, I guess my mindset went, I think Will Anderson and Jalen Carter are just tier above whoever sure. I would consider the best corner. I mean, oh, sure. what, which, which corner would I take? Would it be Kelly Ringo? Would it be Hick? Um, what, what's the kid's name from um, Eli Ricks? Like, who mm-hmm. am I taking at corner? You Riley Moss like from Iowa is the guy that gets a lot of preseason love, yeah. you know. <clears throat> but here's, yeah. here's my thing is, like, you are right. They are better players. There's no question. But I just mm-hmm. go back to you're still going to have the same question marks in the secondary, and and when I look at that, you know, you matchups against an Alabama, against an Ohio State, against you know one of the teams you're going to have to play in the postseason. What if they can look? Teams are going to be able to slow down your pass rush if they're if they're good enough, right? Can you then cover? And sure. and that's the thing for me. It's like like. With the defensive line as it is now, they're not going to have a huge problem getting pressure on the quarterback this year, I don't think. That's fair. Now, the the one exception for me might be Will Anderson. Yes. because More so than Jalen Carter. Jalen Carter is a phenomenal player. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I look at the idea of because of the matchups that Notre Dame plays, the big matchups they play, when I think of Ohio State, Clemson and USC and then getting in the postseason a potential rematch against Ohio State uh, right. playing potentially Alabama and their pro style attack but a a pass oriented pro style attack you know let's say Texas gets hot and makes a run all the teams that you could potentially play except for Georgia mm-hmm. are going to be pass oriented teams where you could much you're going to have a much easier an opportunity to get Foskey and Will Anderson on the field together and just sure. a d- dominate the edge. And then all of a sudden, how do you block Jason Adamiola at that point in time? If you've got to worry about those two guys, you know, and then you move Riley That's Mills fair. inside. And and because so the unique matchups of it are are intriguing. If I thought Notre Dame was going to play an old school Notre Dame schedule where, you know, you're playing Michigan and their power football and Michigan State and their power football and Stanford and their power football, it'd be Jalen Carter. But because yeah. of the nature of the schedule, it's either got to be Will Anderson or preferably a top corner. And I mean, you said which guy would it be? Wouldn't be yeah. Ricks because I I think he's overrated, and I don't know if he's gonna like show up the next day. Sure, uh, but yeah, you give me Keely Ringo opposite Cam Hart with Brandon Joseph at, at safety. Yeah, it's good well, unit. pretty darn it's good, good defense. Pretty good. You know? yeah. <laughs> pretty good. Dark, I mean, dark t- to your point about the Will Anderson versus Jalen Carter debate, it also strengthens your interior if you take Will Anderson because then you can use a guy like a Riley Mills more inside. That's so right. that's a good point. Yeah, one point. heck. Yeah, and that's the thing for me. It's just building the complete roster. I mean, here's yeah. the at the end of the day, when we're talking about Will Anderson versus Jalen Carter, the mm-hmm. reality is there's not a wrong answer. No, <laughs> you know, just it's what's just your about, flavor? It's just about preference. Yeah, a hundred percent. Scott Yerbick said, how do you think the rocket would be used in today's game? Would he have 
the same success. No, he would not have the same success. He'd be way better. I know I was about to say, did you you see, I know you're not an NFL guy, Brian, but did you see how San Francisco just used um, Debo Debo. Samuel? It, It would be different. But that's what you would get. I mean, Debo just had like 1,400 yards receiving, but he also had like eight rushing touchdowns, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's him. And then also, but the difference is, is that Rocket also is a great return man. Debo's okay. not. Like he, Debo's just an offensive exclusive player, dynamic player for his role. But I mean, yeah, I agree. He would be much better. In a game that is, and I, I feel like I say this every single show, but in a game that you're trying to manufacture space so much in today's today's world, I mean, rocket in, in that offense. Like, could you imagine him in like Kyle Shanahan's system, just like getting him some yeah. like wide open crossers and like quick screens and all that stuff, man? Like, it would just be silly. It would be really silly. This this is kind of the way that I look at it, Ryan. I think if I were to talk about how he would be how he would be used, I, I really go back and, and think of how, you know players that are co- comparable. And you use the NFL example, but here's the thing: Do you remember DeAnthony Thomas from Oregon? So he was like. Sorry, I was shaking. I was shaking no, my okay. head. I was on. Okay. I was shaking I, my. I was, was like, lo- I was looking at his stats. I'm like Ryan. Are you listening? I swear uh, I was listening. I was shaking my head. You look at the way that him. Oregon used him. So, like for example, 2011, he had 595 rushing yards, averaged 10.8 yards per carry, he had 46 catches for 605 yards. He also uh, returned two kicks, two uh, kickoffs for touchdowns. He had four kick returns for scores in his career. He had a punt return for a score in his career. Rushed for 26 touchdowns, caught 15 touchdowns, had over 1,800 yards rushing, had over 1,200 yards receiving. Like to me, he was he did all that, and he ran a four-five flat. I know, right? And 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 it wasn't just that Rocket was fast. Rocket was also elusive and strong. Sure. And imagine that. And he ran a four-two-three shuttle, six-nine-four cone time. Not you know great number, but like. He was that real versatile all-around player. You know, mm-hmm. whether you want to talk about Percy Harvin. Was a guy I mean, in my yeah, head. Percy Harvin. Yeah. But honestly, in the Notre Dame offense now, mm-hmm. he's everything we said yesterday about Braden Lindsay is exactly how Rocket would be used, except Rocket would be a higher volume guy. Sure. You know, because like I don't know if you remember this, Ryan, but like in 89, especially in 90, late in games, Notre Dame would put him at running back. And he and, and Lou Samoji used to talk about this all the time. They would wear you down, get you worn out, and then in the fourth quarter they'd put Rocket in and throw like tosses and run ISO encounters with him, and he'd just rip off like a 60-yard run and put the game away. And, and you know, so he could line up at running back. He was so strong for his size, and I think that's the thing a lot of fans who didn't watch him live at the time uh, don't quite understand about Rocket is he was a really physically strong player for his size. I mean, just go look at some of his kick returns where he's brushing people off. So – I mean, specifically, Scott, you know, he'd be taking the top off the defense, go routes, post routes. You'd be getting him on climb, crossers, a lot of things. Talk about Brayden Lindsey, jets, reverses. But honestly, I think you'd also be smart to just at times put him in the backfield and run power read concepts with Tyler Buckner, where you've got the jet sweep with Rocket or you've got to cover Tyler Buckner. I think those would be those would be some really interesting, really interesting alignments. But I think Rocket would be a guy – that would have about a thousand yards receiving. I think he'd have like fifteen hundred yards rushing. He'd be a dynamic return guy. He would be. He would be. I mean, he he's still. I'll say this: the two most explosive players I've ever seen in college. And this is all due respect to Reggie Brooks and you know guys like that. But the two most explosive dynamic players I've ever seen were actually somewhat contemporaries of each other, and that was Barry Sanders and Rocket Ismail. They had one year of carryover in college. 
So Barry was a, a, a his last year at Oklahoma State was Rockets freshman year at Notre Dame. So they had that one year carryover. And then the Rocket played the next two years, but I've still never seen a more explosive player than either one of those two. It just, I mean, some of the numbers Barry Sanders put up were just dumb. And then when you look at Rocket, Rocket was, Rocket was doing modern stuff. Like, this is the thing about Lou Holtz is like, I would have liked to see him do more with Rocket. But, I mean, he was kind of doing some modern stuff with Rocket back then, you know, using him as a receiver and a running back and doing all that kind of stuff. It, he'd be a lot of fun to watch in today's era. Again, DeAnthony Thomas with over two tenths of a second off of his 40 time. Think about it's that. crazy. He, he probably really. runs the same 40 as he ran a 20 yard shuttle. Yeah, right? He's like probably as fast as the Anthony Thomas right now. You know what I mean? Like he's lost a couple steps. He's probably around a four or five now. I, I like how most people always say, like, I would like to see this this quarterback in the current era. Like that, you know, mm-hmm. they talk about guys like Cordell Stewart and like, like you know, sure. No way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But also, I, I feel like we don't talk enough about like the space players of the past. Yeah. We're just like, could you imagine him? Yeah in this game now like i mean rocket was still playing receiver in an era where they put their hand in the ground right i mean as receivers i mean notre dame did not everybody did but notre dame did a lot of teams did you know where they're getting in the three-point stance to take off as a receiver you know which Mm -hmm. is just nuts but yeah uh, that's what they would do so i I think i think of that even like with guys on defense like lawrence taylor a little bit too Mm -hmm. right it's like because lawrence was obviously a great pass rusher but then also the giants would use him just kind of as a stacked linebacker a ton too could you imagine if they were just like you're von miller you're on the edge Mm -hmm. every single play he'd probably have the sack record right now like that's Mm -hmm. just that type of stuff yep Uh, yeah the thing about just the volume of sacks he had relative to the number of pass attempts you were facing on a week-to-week basis yeah exactly he had like 130 something sacks and in, in a non-passing yeah. era really yeah. so yeah. yeah sean kane asks if these four race right now in the hundred what would the finish order be chris tyree micah bell Braden Lindsay, Braylon james i say flip the first two and then you've got it i was about to say micah bell yeah yeah it's pretty much there i was gonna say micah bell takes that one in my opinion yeah. just in general but yeah. they're running yeah. the 50 maybe chris tyree if they're yes. running a 50-yard dash, maybe Chris Tyree. Chris Tyree's short numbers were dynamic. His yeah. 55 indoor times, I mean, as a sophomore and a junior in both years, I, I didn't look at his senior year numbers. He had the fastest 55, I think it was 50. He either ran the 55 or the 60, I forget which one. But as a sophomore and a junior, he had the fastest times in the nation for his age, for his grade. Excuse me for his grade. I think he was a 55 kid, if yeah. I remember correctly. So, yeah. uh, you know, and I'm not talking football prospects. I'm talking about he had the fastest 55 meter time in the country in both of those years, which is just insane for guys in his grade. So those that would be one heck of a race. 100, I think Micah Bell's a, got longer legs, and that's where I think he would end up pulling ahead. Because you see this all the time, right? Like you'll see a guy that's trailing for like the first 70, you know, meters, and then all of a sudden just – you know, he's because he he's that. He has a kick. He has yeah. a kick. Yeah. Like yeah. Usain Bolt had a great burst, but when you watch a lot of his track meets, like he's usually not the first guy out of the blocks. His you know? his starts were never great, man. That was right. the thing about Usain is he ran nine five eight and like his starts weren't great. Because like, he's so yeah. long. It's hard yes. to get a good start when you're long, you know. Yes. And there's a lot of times who was that guy that we do the American he would always go against? Was it Tyson Gay? Was that kind of Jesse, one of his rivals? Tyson Gay was one of them. Jesse Gatlin was another. But they I were think. both yeah. the, the there was a couple guys that were just really short guys. Yes, and you'd Gat- always think Gatlin like, was like five ten. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you're like, oh, this is the time they're going to beat him. Look at the start. Look at the jump they got on Usain. And by halfway, they're like, see ya. Usain right? is crazy, man. He's a legit right? six five. Like he is long. Those shorter guys get really good starts, and the longer guys tend to be better finishers. That's why you see a lot of those long those 
not all of them because the guy that just smoked the 200 record beat Michael Johnson's 200 meter record yesterday is not a real tall guy. But no. a lot of those guys tend to be really good in the, the the longer events, right? Not all of them. Donovan Bailey was really tall, if you remember him. He also yep. was on performance enhancers and all that. But like Michael Johnson was a better long distance. He was a better two and 400 guy than he was a 100-meter sprinter. That's right. why when they did that famous race, he wouldn't ra- run him in 100. And Donovan mm-hmm. didn't want to run him in a 200, so they went with the 150. Uh, but uh, – yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic, but that's why I would say I'd go with Micah Bell longer. And Braylon James in that race wouldn't even be close in a hundred no. meter dash, and and he's fast. Yeah. That's how insane those guys are track wise. But let's pull out some one ten high hurdles, then. this will be a, oh, little yes. bit of a different conversation. Oh, for yes, James. he he might be first. He yeah, might be first because how tall he is with those strides. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Can somebody ask us about uh, this type of question with some Lyman next? I want to talk about no. who I think will win between Blake Fisher. Rocco Spindler. No. And no. Okay. No. No. Right. Sorry. I'll, Sorry. I'll We're start not... if it pops up. I'll no. start if it pops yep. up. Yep. Yeah. You go ahead and do that. I, I want to put, I want to put into context some of these numbers though for, because yep. I don't think Braden Lindsay would necessarily be that close in a race either. Like sure. he would be in the conversation, but he, he wouldn't be like, you wouldn't be thinking he was going to win it. And, and I want to, I want to put some context to this because I, I, I think people need to understand Micah Bell and Chris Tyree aren't just fast football players. They're fast track guys, period. You know, mm-hmm. like like they're they're like legit. Like I think what did I see this year that uh, that Micah Bell had the fifth best two hundred meter time in the country, yep. regardless of whether they were football players or not. I believe. But Brayden Lindsey won a state championship in track in the two hundred. He mm-hmm. was a really good two hundred meter runner to the point where Notre Dame, Oregon was trying to recruit him to run track at Oregon. And if you know anything about Oregon's track program, it's pretty good. Yes. His best times, his best 200 meter time ever was a 21.49. And he won a state championship with that number. Uh, so, I mean, he, he was really fast. Micah Bell as a junior this past year ran a 21. He beat that multiple times. Mm-hmm. He had a 21.4 in, in early March. Now that, that matters because you, you're going to get faster as the year goes on, just like a lot of sports yes. in the, in the, whatever championship they were in his 200 meter time was a 20.89 which like, is over half a second faster right and just for correct correct yeah. chris tyree you know again he he didn't run it's hard to compare chris tyree because chris stopped running i believe the 200 as a sophomore but chris tyree's best time was a 21.57 as a sophomore which is pretty fast very fast. So his sophomore time was better than Braden Lindsay's senior time. But again, when you look at Chris Tyree, he was he was more of a, a 55 meter guy. So he ran a he ran a 639 as a sophomore, 63 flat as a junior, and 631 as a senior, which are incredibly fast times. So uh, but I mean, so so just to put into context just how fast those guys are, like they are, they are, I don't say world class, because when you think world class, you start thinking like Olympics. I don't think. I don't think they're there. Maybe Micah Bell could be, but they are elite high school track guys. Like Chris Tyree's best hundred meter dash time was a 10, six, six, but he ran that as a sophomore, right? That's really fast. You know, Braden Lindsay's best hundred meter time, I think it was like a 10, eight, but again, he stopped. He, he ran that as a sophomore as well. I believe sophomore or junior, I believe. Um, but that's not in the same ballpark. And and we're talking about a guy that's a, a mid to low four, four guy. Right. Yep. And that's just how fast that those two guys are. But Micah Bell is 
as impressive as Chris Tyree's numbers are, Micah Bell's are even more impressive. It's mm-hmm. um, he, he's and and he's a jumper. That's the yes. other thing. Like he's a you don't see a, plus for long yeah, jumper. You like, don't see yeah. that very often. You really don't. I mean, yeah. Chris Tyree's best long jump time was twenty two nine, which is again pretty good for a guy that's five nine and a half, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Micah Bell's best long jump is over two feet longer than that. I mean, so it uh, it, it his stuff is really really impressive, really mm-hmm. really impressive. And I don't think Braden Lindsay was a jumper. I don't think he was a jumper. I don't think so either. So that's uh, gives you a little bit of a a look. Does Braylon, at those does Braylon guys. James jump? I know he's a. That's long, a good I, question. You know, he's a high can, hurdler, I, but I can look it up real quick. I know that Tobias Merriweather uh, was a jumper. Yeah, I'd be curious what his numbers were uh, as well as we look through this. But let me let me look and see Braylon James track statistics here. I wouldn't be surprised if he was a high jumper. Uh, his numbers don't show up here. Uh, let's see here. High jump. Uh, yes, six foot personal record. He did that as a tenth grader. Okay. So I don't Pretty know. I, I don't have great context for that, but that was looks like he's only done it a couple times. It doesn't look like he's done a lot of jumping. Yeah. So. They were they were like, you you can jump high, just do that sure. real quick. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, you yeah. don't have to practice, just go jump. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, the best let's see here. They don't have Tobias Merriweather's updated jumps on here. But because I'm pretty sure he was jumping as a junior, but they they have his longest jump. They don't have it uh 2019 so that would have been what freshman year mm-hmm. so it doesn't look and that was 1810 but that's i mean that's so out of context because he was just a freshman so i right. don't uh yeah his his best time of 200 is 21.8 which is pretty good for you know it's pretty for good time size. Yeah, yeah it's pretty good time yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Scott Yerbeck says, if Coach Freeman gave you the playbook and said you call plays for, for one series, what would you call? Who we playing? Yeah, <laughs> I, I love questions like this because they're really they're they're really they're creative and they're fun. But you know, I'll be honest with you; these are better questions to ask in the season when we're getting ready to play an opponent, where I can have context. I mean, that's the thing: is what's the down and distance? You know, is that series? Are we starting at our own five? Are we starting in the red zone? Or is it the first series of a game? Is it the first series of the second half? I mean, is it is it the third series of the game? I mean, there's what 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 defense are we playing? I mean, what's the strengths of their personnel? Are they do they have a good front? Do we need to protect? You know, because I may say a team that's slow and athletic, I may say hey, we're going to come out, we're going to go empty, we're going to go eleven personnel, we're going to mix it up, we're going to get we're going to get on the perimeter because they're big and slow. If it's a team that's kind of fast but undersized, I'm, I may say hey, let's go twelve personnel and do some different things and move the pocket. 
Do they have a cornerback that I want to go after? Do they have a safety I want to go after? Can I can I manipulate them with motions and shifts and different things like that? There's so much to consider that it would be impossible for me to say what I would do. Uh, you know, so I mean, but generally speaking, I try to go into every series with a design of being able to to run our best run. And I want to do a play where we're going to be able to take a shot. Right. And then, of course, there's quick game stuff built in based on down and distance. But I always want to try to find a way. How can we get our best run plays established and our best run play established? And I want to look for an opportunity to take a shot every series. And that's kind of how I do it. But specifically, they're just so much context. But Scott, hang on to this question, because this is stuff that I have no problem answering if I have a better answer. And some people have asked, like, what would you call against Ohio State? I haven't dove enough into Ohio State to say this is exactly what I would do, other than specifically saying I'd want to, I'd, I'd probably be more run call oriented and then have the RPOs built off of it. I'd mix up my alignments, my personnel, and all that stuff just to start seeing how they're going to respond to different things. Because that's the other part. If you're going to say, I get to call the first series of the game, that's going to look a whole lot different than I get to call the fourth series of the game. Because the first series, I'm kind of, I'm kind of prodding right? Mm-hmm. Okay. What are they going to do to this? What are they going to do to that? Based off film, we know what we think they're going to do because of what we saw in film, but let's see if they do the same thing against us. And and then you got to be careful sometimes, because if you think they're going to do something, you got to make sure that you don't then use it as just a look to see. So for example, uh, we were playing against um, my alma mater. Actually, we we're coaching against my alma mater when I was at Christopher Newport and we we're playing them in the first round of the playoff at their place. They were undefeated top five team. Well, I coached, I played against, I mean, that the, the head coach and the D coordinator were the head coach and D coordinator when I was playing. And so I kind of had an insight into to how they thought, but they would, they loved going corners over. So if they were playing like a base, you know, this is back when, you know, 12 per, or 21 personnel was used a whole lot more than it is today. When you'd go 21 personnel, that's two running backs, a tight end, and two receivers, and you go slot, you know, two corners in a twins alignment, they would go corners over. So what we did is we went, we lined, we went 21 personnel, but we gave them a twins look. But what we did was is we put our running back, Roland Hilliard, in the slot. And then we'd put our one of our receivers, George Jones, in the backfield and then motion him out because they only had either a linebacker or safety. Well, the reality is, is we didn't want to show them that look to see how they would respond. We wanted to say, let's use this on a play. And so we had two play calls off of it. The first one, we threw a, a just a one-on-one George against a receiver, a safety. We scored it for a touchdown. So then we came back to it again later at about our 35-yard line. We did the same thing, and we knew they would overreact to it, and we banged a backside post route off of it, right? Well, we had two shots at it. I mean, we weren't going to be able to do that more than a couple times because then they would have answers to it after that. So you got to make sure you use that appropriately as well, but you also need to do different things to try to poke and prod and see what they're going to do. So that's all the fun stuff that kind of, that's the, I'll be honest with you. That's really the only thing about coaching that I miss is that stuff, the the game planning, the, you know, the, the, the mental chess that you go through during a game, you know, uh, that's the stuff I miss. Right. And I mean, the relationships with the kids and that stuff is obviously always something you you have, but as far as the actual coaching aspect, that's really the only thing that I miss about it, to be honest with you. you Scott, you should ask this question every single week for for a there you uh, go. for a, a opponent preview, and then we should match up Brian's script versus Coach Reese's script after the week. <laughs> that would be fun. Well, there's not a right or wrong; it's what your preference is. There's a right. There's a right or wrong. There's a no, right or wrong. no, there isn't. <laughs>
Stone Stonador, you're always trying to start stuff lately. I'm going to have to have a little chat about this after the show. Stone Stonador, based off of players projected to leave for the draft and incoming recruiting classes, which ND team do you think will be more talented, 2022 or 2023? So let's get this premise out of the way, Ryan. Mm-hmm. What guys do we anticipate leaving? We both agree that Michael Mayer will be yes. gone. We yes. both agree that Isaiah Foskey will be gone. Yes. We both agree that Cam Hart will be gone. Yes. What about Brandon Joseph? I would say 70-30 he's gone. Okay. So let's say of that scenario, one of them comes back. Who would be the most – because, I mean, every year you have some guy that you think is going to leave that comes back, right? This year was Jared Patterson. Everybody thought he was gone after the season. He decided to come back. Foskey was a guy that people thought was going to be gone. He decided to come back. back. This was a unique situation because of the Coach Freeman era. Normally Mm -hmm. you get a guy to come back. Mm-hmm. Who would you say would be most likely to come back? I would say either Cam Hart or Brandon, Brandon Joseph, Joseph, correct? Yeah, I, I would say Brent. Actually, no. I, I It's a tough one between Brandon and Cam okay. for me. So let's say Brandon comes back. Right. Everybody else leaves that we think is going to leave. So now Notre Dame signs the guys that we think they're going to get in 23. So, you know, Ronan Hannafin, Jeremiah Love, uh, one of the quarterbacks we like, Jaden Osbury. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's yep. that's who they sign. Okay? Yep. Am I forgetting anybody? Nope. Don't think Gotta, so. Just make sure this. Oh, so Driscoll didn't say this, so they're not going to get that guy. Uh, which we'll have an example of that here in a little bit when it comes to the Austin Osbury question. Mm-hmm. It's like as soon as I, said, I shouldn't have said that because now people are going to take it and it's going to become the latest rumor. And it is. So anyway, who? Which team is, in your opinion, Ryan, is more mm-hmm. talented? I, I I think I would go twenty twenty three. I mm-hmm. think it's a clo- it is it's a really close question because I mean losing guys like Michael Mayer and Isaiah Foskey are obviously I mean that's those those are big losses. I'm just anticipating more the growth of the sophomore class, especially when I'm thinking about what a Tyler Buckner can be in 2023, mm-hmm. what the offensive tackles can be, and then you bring in potentially the number one class in recruiting side of everything. So I think I would lean 2023, but you can convince me either way, honestly, on this one. I think it depends on the side of the ball. And, and mm-hmm. that's like, I think the, I actually think even with the loss of Michael Mayer, I'm leaning towards the 2022 team on, or 2023 team on offense. Yes, they'll lose Michael Mayer and Jared Patterson, but you're going to see Blake Fisher and Joe Alt kind of going into their prime years. Lorenzo Styles is going to go into a prime year. You're going to have your really talented freshman. I mean, you're going to lose Avery Davis, Braden Lindsey, and Joe Wilkins probably and replace them with Jaden Greathouse, Braylon James, Rico Flores, and potentially Ronan Hannafin. You know, you're going to lose Michael Mayer, big loss, but it's not like you're going to be without talent. Eli Raritan is going to be going in. Uh, to the next year. Uh, so he's going to be older. Cain Barong's going to be coming off an injury. Tyler Buckner's going into his second year as the starter. You're going to have your backfield is going to be more experienced. You're going to have Chris Tyree back. You're going to have Audrey Estime. Logan Diggs is going to be healthy. Jadarian Price is going to be healthy. So uh, Tobias Merriweather is going to be in year two. So I think offensively, even with the loss of Patterson and, and Mayer and Lug. I think the 2023 offense should be even more even more talented than the 2022 offense. I think it's the opposite on defense. I don't know who's going to replace Isaiah Foskey next year because you're not just losing Foskey. You're losing him. You're losing Justin Adamiola. You're losing Jason Adamiola. You know, you're, you're talking about losing Cam Hart. 
You're going to lose Tariq Bracey. You're going to lose some really good football players. And I don't know if the, the, like the guys, like there's no, I don't know if there's an Eli Raritan ready to just step in at defensive end. You know, is Josh Burnham ready to be that guy in year two? Is Aiden Gobira ready to be that guy in year two? Now you'll have Keon Keeley, but he's going to still be a freshman. You know, so he won't he he he'll bring you kind of like like what Dallas Turner brought to Alabama this year, but not necessarily a guy that's gonna go out there and play 60 snaps a game. You know, maybe he gets to that point, but just right now I think he's more of a you know a really dynamic freshman, but still a freshman. You know, Jason Adamiola, I mean, who's gonna step in there? Is it gonna be Gabriel Rubio? Is it gonna be Jacob Lacey? Is it gonna be Jason Onye? Is it gonna be Tyson Ford? Is it gonna be one of the incoming freshmen? So I just think there's a lot more questions about the defense in 2023. That's partly why I get I, I don't get into this whole, you know, transition year conversation uh, because a lot of the and the other thing too is a lot of the guys that we think are going to be stepping into roles in 2023 on offense are guys we've seen before for the most part, except of like Eli Raritan. But when you look at the defense, it's a lot of guys that we just haven't seen a whole lot of uh, in in college. So it's a little bit of a different scenario. So it's a really good question. Really good question. I, I enjoy questions like that. So uh, got one from John a one John says, who are your top five most talented all purpose Notre Dame players? I got Tim Brown, rocket Ismail, golden Tate, Ricky waters, and Theo Riddick. So most talented all purpose. So I think the first four are no brainers. I think those are I, – I'd have to think about this, but I don't know if I would necessarily put Theo Riddick in there because if we're going to say all-purpose Notre Dame players, I think you got to look at like a guy like Alan Rossum, who was a defensive player, but he was a defensive player that was a big-time punt returner and return – I believe he also returned kicks at Notre Dame. You know, I, I think that you'd have to I – mean, I'm just trying to think through it. Like, you know, do you, do you put Joey Getherall in that conversation? You know, he's probably not in my top five. You know, I'd look at maybe an Arnez battle, right? Didn't Arnez, I think, I'm going to look this up real quick. I thought Arnez, once he finally moved to wide receiver, I, I think he had some returns as well. Uh, yeah, David Givens. I mean, there's some really interesting, some really interesting, yeah, receiving 58, let's see here, kick returns. Yeah, he had 335 kick return yards on 16 returns in his last year at Notre Dame, you know, played quarterback played receiver but that fifth one i'd have to really think about john i have to really think about and i'm sure there's somebody that i'm forgetting somebody that i'm missing uh as i kind of think through this list i'm like let's see here i'm trying to think running backs all purpose like i wouldn't put i wouldn't put i mean do you put julius jones in there i probably wouldn't because julius stopped returning kicks i believe later in his career i could be wrong on that but i believe he did um you know trying to trying to look into um, some different fellas that that you could look at that were all purpose guys. Um, you mentioned. I'm just trying to I have to think. Of, really have to think about this one. It was like Will Fuller's not that guy because he didn't return kicks or do anything other than catch. Now I'm trying to think of a defensive guy too. I mean, there's been some defensive guys that have been return men and 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 done some different things. So uh, Jeff Burris. Somebody just mentioned Jeff Burris. That's a really good one. You know, but, uh, you know, because he did some things offensively. What I'm curious about Jeff Burris was, and obviously he had the he had the rushing stats, but did he return kicks? Because if he returned kicks, then I'm going to jump him into the conversation. Yeah, he returned punts one year, 18 punts for 227 yards, averaged 12.6 per punt return. Also rushed for 10 touchdowns in his career. 
and he was very talented. So, Michael, I think that's a – Michael uh, had that one. I think that's a really good one. I like that one a lot. I, I definitely like that one. That's a really – yeah, I, I mean, because, again, I, I like Theo Riddick a lot. I do. I love Theo. But I just don't know if I would put him in in the – you know, maybe you could say, like, most productive all-around players. But I don't know if I'm putting Theo in the most talented of the five all-around players. So that's why I'm going to go with – uh, the five that I went with. So that that's my answer to that one. But re- John, really, really good question. I, I like that one quite a bit. Got some super chat questions here, Ryan. Perfect timing for you to come back. We got some recruiting conversation going on. Ryan Loftus with a super chat. Thank you, Ryan. With on three updating their rankings to reflect three Notre Dame players earning a fifth star, how does Notre Dame not finish with a unanimous number one 2023 class? So... Number one, not all of those guys are ranked uh, as high. I would argue that, yes, they have some guys ranked higher than others. They have Peyton Bowen ranked as a five-star. But this is the same outlet that also has Micah Bell as the 67th best player in the state of Texas. And a Those kind of misses <laughs> balances, balance out the, the positives, right? So, like, you know, Charles Jagsaw is ranked as the number six player in the country. But he's not quite that high by everybody else. Now, his his ranking is interesting because it is going up because uh, 247 also jumped him up from, I think, 64th to like 25th. So he yep. he's definitely going up. But Rival still has him 122nd, and ESPN still has him 71st. There's a lot of variance. And, and as other guys are bumping up, right, so Micah Bell gets bumped up. Charles Jagasaw didn't get bumped up by, on three. He, was, he, was no, he got bumped up one spot. He was number seven in the last ranking. So in mm-hmm. Peyton Bowen was ranked pretty high too. He went from 37th to 18th, but they dropped Drake Bowen like like 40 spots, right? Like they dropped, I think Christian Gray's another guy that saw a big jump. They dropped Brennan Vernon. I mean, so so yes, there were some guys that moved up. Sullivan Absher went up 20 some spots, but other guys moved down and it somewhat balanced it out. The number one class number, I think some people are Ryan, um, I think there's too many people just assuming they're not going to finish with a number one class. I'm not saying they will. We'll see how it goes. But I, I think they have a much better shot than a lot of people realize for a number of reasons. Assuming that the rankings people are honest in how they put together their final rank, final rankings, then yes, mm-hmm. I do think Notre Dame has a shot to be number one. But I don't think it's definitely a, a, no, a no-brainer. It's, because again, how do they not finish with a unanimous number one class? Alabama's just now starting to add guys to their class. Ohio State's yeah. class on paper is every bit as good as Notre Dame's. I, I think we can have a debate about that because I think mm-hmm. Ohio State's got some overrated players like Luke Montgomery and, and Austin Saraveld and a couple guys like that, but they also have a couple guys that I'd say maybe should be Bryson Rogers. I think is a little bit underrated. We've talked sure. about him. Yep. So it just depends on how they put their class together. I mean, honestly, do they get Austin Novosad? Mm-hmm. Do they get Jeremiah Love? Do they get Austin Ronan Hannafin. Do they get um Jay Nalsbrim? And they they, they got to hit all their numbers because they're gonna have 24 to 25 guys, you know, so they're gonna have the volume. It's just about whether or not the rankings are done objectively, Ryan. That's my rant on it. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Well, I, I was actually gonna lead off with Micah Bell, right? It's like because mm-hmm. for every good ranking they have, they have one that's just atrocious, right? Like if we're mm-hmm. if we're ranking guys where we believe they should be ranked. Like if Micah Bell, for instance, was what's fair, Brian, top 150 type of player. Micah for Micah Bell? Bell? 
Yeah. At the lowest. Yeah. I mean, 150. Because, you know, you could, you could look, look, we're going to focus on the floor. Like SI 99, that's all Americans like that. They focus more on the floor than the ceiling. Well, in a ranking like that, you're not going to have Mike Bell top 50. You're going to have a more 90 to 120 kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, So, but that's just, I mean, 150 to me is the floor, but you don't have to have them 55th the way that 247 had them before, now 67th. You know, I would probably have them closer to that, but you know, 150 is where the floor should be for that. Yeah. So if we, if we have players, I mean, cause there's just some guys that are just so inappropriately ranked. Like if we're being completely honest and I know that we can also look at the other side and say like, well, Charles Jacobs is probably a little too high and I, I'm fine with that conversation, mm-hmm. but I mean, Charles Jacobs being the sixth ranked player when he probably should be closer to maybe 40 or 50 is a lot different than, than having Micah Bell as a three-star, right? Like that's criminal mm-hmm. at that point. So I think that it's, it's, Ryan, to your question, great name again, by the way. I think I've said that to you before, but it's uh, it's something where uh, bad rankings are going to weigh down the good rankings, right? Like, I mean, uh, Brian, did you say like kind of cancels out, right? Like, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what happens, right? Is that it cancels out right. a little bit. So right. they, they're going to have a chance, though. I really, I mean, I keep telling people because it keeps coming in. I think number one class is going to be tough, but they're in the conversation. And I think a top three class, absolutely. Like, I think that that I would be surprised unless, you know, barring something crazy happening, that they don't have a top three class in the 2023 cycle. So I think I think that you made a great point that we are – it's okay to be excited. I'm telling you, man. Mm-hmm. It's okay. It's okay to think that it could happen. All right. right. I understand. You don't want to let yourself down and BK PTSD. And I get all that stuff, man. Sure. But – it's a different staff. It's a different time. Yeah. It's a different era. Because what we've seen in the past, Ryan, is Notre Dame being ranked number one is not a new thing in recruiting. I mean, they've been – I mean, the 2021 class was ranked number one at one point. I believe last year's class got the number one at one point. for, But it was always when they had like 12 guys and everybody else had four. Sure. And I remember when Notre Dame got to like 13 and, it, and like the next closest team was like four. And everybody kept saying, well, was other teams add more, they're going to catch Notre Dame. And to a degree, some have. But mm-hmm. well, really only Ohio State because it's Ohio State, and then everybody, no one else is even close to Notre Dame right now because the numbers are different. You know, Bama's got like what fourteen now. There's Something six like guys that, yeah. off, of course, in a points-driven, you know, a cumulative points-driven thing. You're they're going to be lower. Mm-hmm. The difference, however, that people I don't think are taking into account of is the quality of what has been left on the board for Notre Dame compared to last year's. So, like in 2021, when Notre Dame was ranked number one, they already had Tyler Buckner in the class. They already had Blake Fisher in the class. They already had Gabriel Rubio in the class. I mean, the only big name ranked guy they added was late was later was Prince Kali, who wasn't even ranked that high at the time. I mean, when you when you finally got the, all the guys on the board, Lorenzo Styles was, was committed really early. Deion Colsey committed early. Eventually, decommitted, came back in the class. Kane Barong was in the class early. Most of your highly ranked guys were already in the class. And then you had a couple underrated guys that were good players. You added Audric Estime late. He was more of a 150 to 250 kind of guy on the consensus stuff. But you didn't have any Jaden Osbury's on the board remaining. You didn't have a Jeremiah Love on the board remaining. You didn't have an Austin Novosad on the board remaining. You didn't have a Ronan Hannafin who's jumping up in the rankings on the board remaining. You didn't have a Samuel Pemba on the board who you had a chance with. That's the difference. And then you go look at the guys they've added recently that in the past weren't there. You know, they've added Jaden Greathouse late. They've added Christian Gray late. They've added Micah Bell late. These guys that were ranked really high, they didn't add Charles Jagasaw as early 
as they've added their top offensive lineman in the past. In the past, Blake Fisher was the first offensive lineman to commit, I believe, to Notre Dame. Notre Dame. They were getting those guys early. In this instance, their best lineman signed or committed last. Yeah. So the, just it, it's just a different situation, and I don't think it's a. And here's the other part too, big picture. If you look at where Notre Dame's projected to finish, barring somebody just jumping way up in the rankings, they're not. They're they're more close to two to four in in regards to stacking up against past number one teams. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the legitimate conversation as well. You know, right now Notre Dame, depending on who they sign, uh, and 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 some guys getting a bump, is most likely going to finish between like two hundred ninety eight to three hundred points which in some years gets them up to number two and other years has them three or four. Right. The thing I think we're not taking into account, however, is that I don't see the path to 320 for a lot of teams that we've seen in recent years, Mm -mm. because unless there's just a bunch of flips to like one school, right? Like I don't see a team signing eight defensive linemen with the quality that A&M had last year, right? Like that was a weird year. And if you look at it, if you look at the top hundred, it was very, it was heavily, heavily handed out to like four different teams, really three different teams, the way that the rankings were. This year, we're not seeing one team buy all the players. If we're going to assume that AM did that, which I believe that they did, uh, legally, whatever, who they bought the players. What we're seeing this year, however, as NIL is now a part of the entire process for this class. Mm-hmm. We're seeing more guys going to other schools not named Bama, Georgia, AM, Ohio State for those type of deals, right? Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. We're seeing them go to Miami. We think of Jaden Rashada and Jaden Wayne. You look at Tennessee and the guys they've been able to get. Yep. You know, you, you look, those are those are guys are you see Cedric Baxter, not Cedric Baxter. Um, I always get him and Ruben Owens confused, yeah. but him going to Louisville instead of AM. Why? Because of NIL. If NIL is not a thing, he's going to Texas or Alabama or Oklahoma or Texas A&M, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're seeing more of the talent being spread out. And the, here's the other thing, too. The fact that Notre Dame is doing what it's doing is also taking away from those teams. Keon Keeley, most likely, if Brian Kelly is the head coach at Notre Dame, the odds are good. Marcus Freeman's not the defensive coordinator at Notre Dame right now. That's the reality of it. I'm just mm-hmm. just being honest, okay? However, if in that scenario, you, you might lose a Keon Keeley. You don't land Peyton Bowen, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. If, if, if Marcus Freeman's just the defensive coordinator, I don't think they have Peyton Bowen in the class right now. He was the first kid to commit to Marcus Freeman. Now, maybe they get him, but they, they maybe they get him, but I think the chances of him flipping are greater. You know, I, I don't think you have – Jaden Greathouse. You don't have actually. You don't think you, you don't, don't have Jaden Greathouse. You can replace him with Malik Elzey. You don't Brandon have Braylon James, James right? Yeah, Rico right, Flores right. has said he doesn't come to Notre Dame. You'd have Cedric Irvin as your running back. You know, you'd have you'd have Brooks Bars one of your defensive linemen. You probably don't have either Bubakar or you know one of those guys. You'd still have Brennan Vernon. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd probably still have Drake Bowen. But Drake loves Marcus Freeman. If Marcus Freeman leaves it's not a given that Drake stays because that was a big reason he stayed. Now he's falling in love with Notre Dame. Now the sure. point being Ryan, the class doesn't look the way it did. And where would most of those guys have gone? Keon would probably be at Alabama, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Jaden Lamar might be at USC. You know, you, you look at Christian gray would be at LSU or Ohio state. Right. I mean, so right. 
Peyton, Peyton Bowen and being Oklahoma Texas or, or, or yeah. Alabama, right? Yeah. I mean, so yep. the schools that were getting those guys are not getting them because they're going to Notre Dame. I mean, Notre Dame has beaten several kids at Alabama once or has kept from Alabama from getting or flipping guys that they would normally get or flip. Sure. Miami is taken away from those teams. Uh, Clemson is bouncing back with getting some big time kids that, that they were missing the last couple of years. Uh, you're looking at at Tennessee getting some of those kids. So I just think the talent is being spread out a little bit more evenly this year. So mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to see a team finish number one with like 320 points like we have in past years. So I think that's got to be factored into this equation as well when you look we've at the t- potential for it. We've talked a lot about the quarterback carousel too. There's a lot of big-time programs that do not have a top-ranked quarterback right. right now. I mean like LSU right. and Texas A&M and Ohio State and Notre Dame included in that. But – the point of the matter is, is that there is some guy. I mean, right now, Alabama has two quarterbacks that are viewed as top 10 quarterbacks in the class, right? Like, I know there's the one situation with the longer than kid, like if he is, he's going to play baseball over right. playing football, but it's just, right. there's an imbalance, I guess, of power a little bit in this right. class. Like it's, it's a little, it's odd. It's an odd year for me to you say balance of power, more imbalance, of imbalance, imbalance. Yeah. So it's like, what- it's, because like I, I think that there's a lot of irregularities in this class. Uh-huh. It's like you you see a lot of those big name programs that don't have a top quarterback. You're seeing mm-hmm. guys that you would typically just kind of pencil in. Like most years, I think that Peyton Bowen is just Oklahoma. You know, like that's mm-hmm. just like a that's easy, right? And I think that there's some other players. I mean, like you said, Keon. Like Keon, Keon is a Florida kid. Like usually that sure. kid probably stays in SEC. You know, like honestly. So, so you're saying actually there is a balance of power because it's being more spread out, right? Is that what you're saying? Not no, not really. I think it's an okay. imbalance because I mean, because because like the balance of power would be that Alabama gets all their guys. No, see, I think it's an Texas. imbalance of that's an imbalance of powers when it's it's narrowed into a because th- there's not the powers imbalanced into a small number of teams. We're gonna have I a gu- I guess, conversation. I, I guess <laughs> the power the power that I'm talking about yeah. is not the power of the. It's not normally as going a whole. where it normally goes. Yeah, I'm saying that the okay. the recruiting powers that you would think of right. are the Alabamas. So, blah, blah, blah. It's an imbalance because so looking not at it from like typical. a uh, historical type, the, the the three superpowers are not yes. getting the things that they're normally getting. Okay, correct. Yeah, correct. Yep. Yeah, so we're seeing that we're seeing the power spread out more. We're seeing the t- the elite talent spread out more. Yes, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I think that's a big part of this too, as we look at what the numbers are going to look like. Sure. Um, yeah, it's 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 and it's a really it's in a really interesting conversation, Ryan. It it, it really is. It really is. <laughs>
headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.